This is Formula One Racing. Gotcha, folks. This is actually Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You know, recently I wrote a piece about two passions I have that seem to be poles apart, but yet are surprisingly similar. The name of my article was Fantasy on a Theme of Opera Singers and Formula One Drivers. So here's the opening line. In the heady world of opera, there are direct correlations with other passions. Discipline, focus, guts, and fearlessness come to mind. I can relate that to another world which seems to be on the other side of the planet from opera, but it is actually closer than you might think. The world of Formula One racing possesses the same elemental structure. The stage is the track, and the podium is the winning bow and applause. And the drivers on that podium share as much champagne as can be served at any opera bar. Well, if you would like to read my entire article, I hope you'll visit my blog at centerstagewithpamelacoon.com. But for now, I want to speak about this basically European-based sport, which has an incredible adrenaline flow, both from watching and from the driver's seat. And to help me today, I have two racing aficionados <laughs> who are going to aid me in a discussion on the fantastic, and I mean literally fantastic, world of Formula One racing. It helps that I know these men well. Christopher Jones is my husband and the guy who got me interested in the sport. And Bob Small, my producer, is an F1 fan. I've promised to take them both to the American Formula One racetrack in Austin, Texas, when I win the lottery. (laughs) But until then, we are going to talk cars, drivers, danger, guts, and the dizzying musical chairs played by drivers, teams, and race managers. And I got to tell you, one of my racing fans has already questioned the fact that my show is an art show. But for me, the thrill of Formula One it is the art with every race and about staying alive on the track. Chris Jones, Bob Small, welcome to Center Stage. <laughs> Let's talk Formula One. You Can't wait. betcha. <laughs> so, Chris, what is it about this sport that turns you on? Well, I've been watching Formula One since I was quite young. Um, myself and my father, you know, we used to watch all the races together. Uh, we even went to a couple of Formula One tracks and, and watched some races there, and that was that was truly exciting. So I, I learned a passion for the sport from the early age. But what keeps me interested, I guess, is the fact that Formula One to me is the pinnacle of the evolution of racing driving. Um, you've got a combination of some fantastic tracks which go back, you know, long, long, long time. I mean, the Formula One racing circuit, I think, got started in about 1950. Um, but um, uh, we have we have a, a selection of fantastic tracks which are all around what they call a road racing layout, and by that I mean they're not ovals. Um, uh, they they always incorporate lots of twists and turns with some very interesting racing. And if you if you lose control, you don't hit a barrier. Usually you run off into gravel or into grass and what have you, and you might be able to rejoin the race. And so it kind of adds that element as well. Um, but it's a, a, you know, you mentioned European. It certainly started in Europe in the early days, and still many of the races are in uh, in Europe. Um, most of the teams are based in Europe, and they have manufacturing plants in Europe. That is true. All of that is true. Mostly Britain. 
mostly Britain, yeah. and that is yes. absolutely true. Yes, yes. And, and Silverstone, one of the great tracks, um, you know, is, is, is where a lot of them are, are based around, you yeah. know, simply because of that early track. But um, what is fantastic is it truly has become a global sport now. And we have races literally all over the world. And over mm-hmm. the course of a season, there's usually about 23 races. They will go to Australia. They will go to Singapore. They will go to Abu Dhabi. They will go, of course, to many racetracks around Europe. They come to, uh, to Canada. They've been coming to Canada for many years. And we were fortunate that about six years ago, they created a purpose-built Formula One racetrack and uh, MotoGP for motorcycles in Austin, Texas, which you mentioned. Um, and they've just announced that next year they're going to actually create a new circuit in Florida. It's going to be in Miami at the um, in Miami Gardens, and it's going to be racing around um, the Miami Dolphins Stadium Complex. And so that will actually give us two races each year in in America. In America, so, that's incredible. That's an, that's really incredible. What, what what took us so long? Well, now wait a minute. What about Watkins Glen? Well, what can, in New York, they yeah. did Formula One racing there. That's ah. true. There have been seven different tracks in the U.S. that have hosted Formula One races. That's true. But there's never been a purpose-built Formula One track before. That's and that true. was where Austin came. And they do have still have racing in Watkins Glen, by the way. Yeah, so right. they were trying. And I don't you know? think it was the track that was the problem. It was getting the crowds to the to and from the track that was the biggest problem That's of Watkins true. Glen. I can imagine. I yeah. can imagine. So, so Bob, you, you mentioned champagne. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it reminded me of something I learned recently, which I felt was kind of interesting. Do you remember a driver named Dan Gurney? Oh, yeah. oh yes. All right. And he had American Eagle Racing, and he was probably the first American to build his own car and, and race it in Formula One. That was the American Eagle. Okay. And this was a, um, a flat. 12. Wow. It was a very interesting big motor he had. At any rate, Dan Gurney re- recently was being interviewed and, re- and re- revealed that he was the first driver to ever shake up the champagne and spray it. Oh. Ever? Yes. So the tradition they used comes to out drink of that? It. Yes. So they would just take the bottle away and drink it. Yeah, that's all they were originally it was about. That's oh, that's incredible. great. I know. I love it. Because I do love, you know, one of the best <laughs> things about the post-race is not just the interviews with the, uh, with the racing drivers, but to see them up there on the, uh, on, the, on the stadium. The champagne shower is yes, what it is. shaking yeah, up a yeah. champagne bottle, spraying it over each other and that the crowd below. That is so below. cool. That is almost using it like a weapon. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, Bob, what, what turns you on about this, this incredible sport? Well, I think it's that the vehicles are the ultimate vehicle that ever hit has hit the road yeah um i mean they haven't gone completely crazy in in spending but you won't find a vehicle of this capability in any other racing or on the road at all it's just the cars are just outstandingly powerful capable um amazing yes they're amazing i've I've read that each car is about seven million dollars worth of material. Yeah, I mean just talking about the numbers for a second, they're actually going to be introducing in fact, I think this year they are they have introduced a cost cap for the first time yeah, to make I it yeah, ah. more equitable. But, you know, up until the cost cap was introduced this year, Mercedes who's been dominating Formula 1 for the past 6 years or so, but you know, it wasn't just them. Um, they were spending upwards of $600 million every year in terms of their development of the car, all the people that they employed. And one of the jokes was that Mercedes had more people who were on vacation, not in the office at any one time, 
than were totally employed by, for example, Haas Racing, which is probably one of the smallest teams in, in Formula One. Yes. So these cost caps that have come in, um, I think are terrific for the sport to make it more competitive. So you don't just have, you know, two or three teams that are always dominating. And then you also have, you know, those poor teams that are always bringing up the rear. Yeah. Yeah. We want to make it more competitive, make for better racing, which is what they're trying to do with the rule changes which are coming in next year. The cost cap this year was $145 million. It's being lowered next year to 140 and then 135 the year after. Some of the other developments that they're, they're making is to um, reduce the amount of wind tunnel testing that some of the leading teams can do in favor of more testing by the lower place teams yeah. to allow them for more I'm development for time. It. Yeah. I'm all for it. So we can see an equal playing field. I mean, it's like, okay, the show we've talked about often, Bob, you know, A Drive to Survive, the marvelous oh. Netflix series. Yes. I mean, it's really, it's gritty. It really gets down to the fine tooth, doesn't yeah, these it? These are real people. Yeah. And one of the things that was introduced in the most recent series was um, uh, Lawrence Stroll taking over, the, the billionaire, Canadian billionaire, taking over one of the teams and putting a huge Huge injection of cash in, and guess what? Copying their Mercedes car. Oh, and at the same time, he also had his son racing for them. Yeah, talk about privilege here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is time that we had a kind of equalizer here. I'd like to see some of these other drivers we never hear of, like come up through the ranks and, and really show their mettle, because they have it. I can remember a time when Formula One, uh, there was a lot of attrition during a race. The back markers didn't just, they weren't just back markers. The cars couldn't finish the race. Yeah. That's how bad they were. Oh so gosh. things have gotten a lot better than they used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, very interesting. So, guys, have you ever driven <laughs> a car? Have, have no. we driven a Formula 2, Formula 3? I've, I've driven a Formula Ford, which is, think of it as Formula 4. So I have driven a Formula car. But Was that at Brands Hatch? No, it a was Thruxton. it was at Thruxton. Thruxton. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, you know, Pam and I, we we had a great day once uh, where we went to um, um, a British, uh, one of the minor circuits in 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 the UK. Thankfully, there are still you know plenty of circuits out there, and so we went to Thruxton and we had a day race, and um, you know we initially were going around in like a hot hatchback, you know, something like a Ford GTI, mm -hmm. Golf GTI. Mm. Um, but they actually put you in a, a Rev Limited again, you know, open wheel racing car. And that was a Formula Ford. And it was it was a fantastic experience. But that doesn't come anywhere close, not well. even on the same planet as the type <laughs> of performance as a Formula One car. I mean, I think, Pam, you mentioned a stat in your research that you talked about about the acceleration deceleration? Oh yeah, so the stunning fact is that the cars that can they can accelerate from 0 to 100 and back to 0 in 4 seconds. I mean think about that. Yeah. Zero to 100, back to zero. We don't have this experience in normal driving uh, ever. Definitely not. And, <laughs> and and Bob, you said that the 0 to 100 time alone is I've, a I've heard and a said half. a second and a half. A second yeah. and a half. Yeah. I mean, again, a second and a half to get to 100. Yeah. So what about the normal guy who gets into a Formula One car? Well, I'm we, glad we, you asked that oh, question. Oh, great. <laughs> I, I know of a gentleman named <laughs> Sam Fain who recorded a great um, little YouTube uh, video talking all about his experience driving a Formula One car. Wow. He, okay. um, he had... He'd gotten into uh, promotions and and made the right connections and discovered that, and he was always a guy who was into Formula One and he, and he discovered there was a a chance to drive a 2012 Renault Formula One car on on the, on the French track. He had to go to France to do this, and uh, so he went and signed up for it. I don't know what it cost. He didn't talk about oh, that. Oh, I can only imagine. 
So I, I'm going to play for you a little of the uh, this video, and of course it's the and audio the description portion. Of and his experience. his wonderful description. He's he's very animated in in telling the story, so he's a perfect guy for this. And it it's really a lot of fun to listen to. Okay. Here. So this is him starting out, and as he's gotten into the car and he's heading out on the track. You're belted in. They start up the engine and they push you out to the pit lane because it's too hard to engage the clutch. And you roll away and you're very smooth. You have to just let the clutch out real slow and then the car starts to trickle forward. Not like F1 drivers, they obviously help you with that, but off you go. And of course, the initial reaction is the acceleration. Barbaric. I mean, like nothing you've ever experienced before. Take the fastest road car you've ever been. And I'm talking about people who've driven LaFerraris or McLaren Senna's or whatever you might think. Formula One is faster. (laughs) And the biggest thing is it's endless. I always feel like in a road car, there is an acceleration curve, no matter how fast you're in. Even in a Koenigsegg or Pagani, after that initial gut-wrenching acceleration, it smooths off. In Formula One, that doesn't give up. You know, the G-force is constant and your stomach is three miles down the road until you hit the brakes. But I'm kind of expecting that because it's Formula One, right? So I floor the, the accelerator and I'm like, oh my God. And, you know, your head's banging around. All of this. And then I get to the corner and I arguably I'm not doing that fast at that first corner. So I turn in and it's unbelievably smooth and easy. Actually, a lot easier to drive than the little Formula Four cars because of the mechanical grip. The mechanical grip is so high that it's just, I'm like, oh. I am so good at this. I'm like, I am so good at this. Flowing through the corners, the back's not stepping out. I see the straight and I'm like, here we go. This is it. So I just go all the way down to second gear and floor it. And it's the most amazing experience. It feels like being strapped to a rocket ship. And I get to the end and all I remember is these sort of voices inside my head going, use the brakes, you know, like all the people that I've texted beforehand or my racing driver friends or people that I know just saying, what should I do? They're saying, use the brakes. So I'm hurtling towards this first corner. And in the Formula 4 car, I was braking at the 200 meter mark. And I look down and I see the 50 meter mark and I'm like, let's go for it. You know, what's the worst that's going to happen? It was a big runoff. If I die, I die in Formula 1, you know, the way I wanted to go. So I just go and I'm doing this and I see the 50 meters and I push the brake as hard as I can do it. My head, the G-forces takes my helmet and everything down into the cockpit. I can't see a thing. I'm like trying to shift down gears. By the time I can finally lift my head up, the corner's there. So I'm like, turn into the corner. The whole thing goes like this. I'm like, absolutely like as i say i couldn't i've never experienced anything like that and i won't ever again and i finally get back to the pit lane and i get out and the guy goes oh you did a great job you hit 40 percent brake pressure well done 40 <laughs> percent he goes yeah that's pretty good for a first timer and i'm like how is that 40 percent if the real drivers are hitting a hundred percent every time and it wasn't just the fact that I applied as much leg pressure as, as I could. Like, I stamped on that pedal so hard. But it was the forces my body went through. My lungs were, like, at the front wheels. As I said, my head was in, well, you know, in a, not a nice place to be. All of it was so overwhelming that my respect for F1 drivers just went through the roof. Not only their physical 
ability, but the mental capacity to be able to do all of that and be fighting and looking where the opposition are and speaking to your team and, and switching controls. It was a completely sort of a recalibration of what uh, a car could do. So this is the whole physical experience of driving. For, for somebody who, who doesn't make a living doing it, yeah. And, you know, I read that an average F1 driver loses four kilos of weight while driving one race. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, they're strapped in very tight and they mm -hmm. have to, you know, take on liquid. But, you know, the, the exertion, their heart rate is normally around 160 be um, beats a minute for 90 minutes of racing. You know, so it's not surprising that they, they lose weight during the race. But getting back to what he was saying about his head falling forward with the weight of the helmet and the and the stopping forces of 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 the uh of the car i mean they pull four or five g's both in acceleration as well as deceleration so that gives you an idea of how difficult it is and cornering if you and cornering is yeah. well over yeah. you know yeah. 2g probably it's like you know close to 3g um laterally but the phone racing drivers they have trained their neck muscles literally since they were you know young kids in order to be able to withstand those cornering forces and being able to withstand those you know, that sheer physical um, impact of driving. This is so incredible. I've waited to do this show. And everybody <laughs> listening, <laughs> this is Pamela Kuhn on Center Stage. I'm here with Bob Small, my engineer, and my husband, Chris Jones. And we are talking about the incredible art of Formula One race car driving, which we all three love. Now, I, I just have to put one in here for the women. Have there, uh, has there ever been a woman in Formula One, to your knowledge? Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Aha, wait. The only female driver to score a point in Formula One was Leila Lombardi, an Italian who scored a half point by placing sixth in the Spanish Grand Prix in 1975. A half point. Wow. Get that. And 75. wait, we've got more. So now there's a women's league that has just come up called the W Series. And good old Brit, Jamie Chadwick, was the inaugural winner. And she's got her eye on Formula One. And she, she, she became a Williams test driver in 2019 as a result of this. Yeah, she says she doesn't know how to park a car. <laughs> but she put her foot down for the racetrack. She is focused. So we're going to see women coming up the ranks here. Now, if it's brute force and this poor guy off the street can't, can only get 40% into the braking, women are going to have to work doubly hard. I mean, really. Well, first of all, that was a 2012 car. And that was prior to the uh, um, hybrid cars, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. And the hybrid cars now... The braking is a whole different experience. This the brake by wire thing that they talk about, where they're using the um, decelerating forces to help recharge the battery. Right. So you have the mm -hmm. ERS, the Off Energy, the energy Recovery System, to yeah. charge the batteries. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And so well, I'm sure the pedal feels different now. It, it does. And in yeah. fact, sometimes the, I don't think they actually even hit the the pedal. They just let their foot off the accelerator. And it feels like they're already breaking because that may be true. Yeah. the ERS kicks in to yeah. charge the batteries. Mm. Wow. So we're going to see thick necks in women, too, eventually. Just <laughs> like we say, the thick, really well-worked-out yeah. neck yeah. in mean, men, you know, to save themselves. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, look at some of the, you know, athletes we have today or even in, you know, some of the martial arts. You know, I mean, some of those women are incredibly fit and tough. There's no reason why they couldn't drive a Formula One yeah. car as long as they've been trained for it. Certainly. All right, let me ask a little bit of trivia here, guys, because uh -oh. you, you guys are the experts. What does formula mean in Formula One? What does that stand for? 
I I'm, always thought it just meant a, a description of so, a, a type. Uh, yeah, I think that was my initial reaction as well, but I think it might be something to do with the fuel. It actually refers to the set of rules which govern aspects like tires ah. and race start protocols. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a special way they do Heavy all of that. Heavy amount of rules, yeah. And what country has the most F1 winning drivers? Britain. You bet. Oh. You bet. Yeah. And Britain is right up there. What what racetrack, and think big on this one, what racetrack has had the most fatalities? Oh. Well, it have to be one that's been on the calendar for a long time. Um. Think broad spectrum here. Maybe out of Formula One. Yeah, I was going to say, um, uh, I can't think the name of it. It's a German track. Hockenheim? Uh, no, the one with the bank. Uh-uh. Oh. Closer to us, closer to us, Indianapolis Speedway. Oh, oh They've really? had more fatalities than any Formula One track. Oh, so well, you mean in racing then, not in, in Formula racing. One? I no, see. In racing. So that's not a per year thing, though, <laughs> yeah. right? Because no, just you know, in total. The Indy, the Indy track has been around longer than Formula One A long one has time. Been yeah. You know, in the 60s, they had 17 fatalities. In the 70s, oh, wow. uh, 60. I mean, it, the numbers are large, mm. really large. Yeah, I mean, Thankfully, in Formula One now, they've put so much research and development into safety that mm-hmm. fatalities are relatively rare. Yeah. We did, ha- unfortunately, have uh, Jules Bianchi, who died at the Japanese Grand Prix. In 2015. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, that was awful. Um, but thankfully, you know, you see big wrecks these days. I mean, just two weeks ago, we had that, you know, ridiculous race. With, with Russell um, and... Yeah, um, Russell and, and, uh, uh, and Botas right. at, uh, at Imola, where it was a wet track and and and... Um, Russell tried to pass uh, Bottas and put two wheels on the grass, and they collided at about 170 miles an hour, and they both walked away. Yeah, I wonder if they're not going to use Imola anymore. That it's a little too small, it's yeah. got a little a too narrow, mm-hmm. and it had a bad reputation because that is where Senna died. And That's true, and that was what 27 years ago, just last weekend. Yeah. Speaking of which, Ayrton Senna may just be your favorite driver and yes. mine. Yes, and why is that, Bob, for you? Because uh, he was a little crazy about it. Yep. I think that's what, <laughs> what really I mean, struck all me about a little it. crazy. Well, yeah, but, you know, he, he was a very quiet person, very studied about the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not, didn't seem like a real person, in a sense, from that way. Yeah. But he did take those risks. Mm-hmm. And he, he was a, a wonderful <laughs> philanthropist in the end. You know, most of his estate went to the underprivileged in Brazil. Oh. Now, he came from a very privileged background, very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting getting back to Lance Stroll, you know, same kind of thing. Then you look at Lewis Hamilton, who came from real working class oh, yeah. poverty. I mean, yeah. he's, he, I mean, as you know, Lewis Hamilton is my favorite driver, you know, not only because he's British, but also because he's so gifted. And he's also just happens to be... I think now the most achieved Formula oh, yeah. One racing driver. He's equaled Michael Schumacher in terms of um, um, seven World Championship wins. He actually has so many records now in Formula One that he has his own Wikipedia page just for his records. Oh, please. And he's a sir. And he's a sir now, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. But, he's got it all. Should he just become an actor now and let somebody come up to the ranks? <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, look, Sergio there, Perez needs to come rising up there. He's been around know. for a little bit. I, I don't deny Sergio's good, but I don't think hey, he's as good he's as... he's spunky. He, yeah, <laughs> but he's not as good as Max. Max Verstappen, I think, is is the person you're talking about. Oh, yeah. About. He, he's more like the Michael Schumacher, the, the kind of robotic, you know, I'm out for blood. And uh, But what Michael had, what Senna had, what Max has, and what um, certainly Hamilton. what Hamilton had, is that instinctiveness where they can 
ride a Formula One car on the edge of that limit of adhesion, carry so much speed through the corners. They have uncanny abilities for not just reaction time, but being able to feel when the car is right on the edge and being able to ride that edge longer and more fluidly than almost any other driver that's on the track. Uh, Hamilton is the one that really blows my mind in that regard because when you see the the practices start, which is really kind of neat that we get to see this on television, yep. that we get to see the practice sessions, the qualifying session, and then the race every weekend that the racing happens. And um, he starts off almost slower than anybody else, Hamilton does. Yeah. And through a studied understanding of what the car can do and what he needs to do as he rounds the track, he slowly gets faster and faster and he ends up being the fastest. You're talking about the preparation laps before he goes for his qualifying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when he prepares the car, you're right. He knows what the car and the tires need, mostly the tires. To get the best out 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 of the car, you have to have the tires in the right operating window because they can't be too hot and they can't be too cold. If they're too cold, they won't have enough grip. If they're too hot, they're going to give up that grip before the end of the lap. And getting those tires in in that beautiful window of perfection, Mm. he does almost better than anybody else. Hmm. It helps when you have tons of money, right? Well, he has it now, but he didn't. (laughs) That's instinct. Behind him on the team. No, that's instinct, though. Uh, Fine. It's nitrogen in the tires, isn't it, guys? Oh, I think it is. I think it is. Probably. Yeah. And and they don't ever refuel. They fuel up in the beginning. They used to. Uh-huh. They used to have refueling, but about eight, nine, ten years ago, they stopped mm. doing refueling in races because there was be a number of fires. Potentially yeah, yeah. dangerous. There I were, mean, that yeah. makes sense. That's they have they, been but some it does fires mean the in the cars are greatly different in weight from the beginning of the race to the yeah, end. Yeah, they race. have 100 kilos of weight of, of fuel weight at the beginning of the race, and by the end, it's almost gone. It's incredible. Now, listen, before we run out of time, and I feel that checkered flag coming, <laughs> I want to talk about that unbelievable crash and fire with Romain Grosjean, oh. where he was sitting in his car for two minutes and 45 seconds before they could get him was out. Was it that long? Now, those F1 helmets are protecting you, they reckon, for less than a minute, right, at 800 degrees. Yeah, it's the helmet, and it's the fire suit. Mm-hmm. No, um, yeah. The the yeah, I mean the thing that saved his life there initially from the impact. Certainly, the fire suit when he was in the fire, but in the impact was the halo device, which they only introduced about five years ago, mm. and that was what actually managed to separate the safety barrier um, sections so that it didn't take his head off. And, you know, thankfully, he was able to jump out of the car he eventually. He walked away. Yeah. It is an absolute miracle. Okay, do I feel the checkered flag coming down? Yes, I'm afraid is it, you Is do. it in the near distance? Yes. Chris Jones, Bob Small, this has been supercharged. <laughs> we have to do this again because 28 minutes just doesn't do it. Yeah? <laughs> We're in pole position. <laughs> oh, Listen, I've learned so much from Formula One, uh, you know, from both of you, and I'm thrilled to have you as my guests. And we will do this again. I'm absolutely exhausted now and have to go lay down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, everyone. I notice you're talking faster as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I get it. So I want my listeners to go to my website, centerstageofpamelacoon.com, for info and a gallery of my shows. In the meantime, thanks, guys. Stay safe out there. This is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center.